Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Matt McDonald, a freelancer from Sky News. Matt has spent the last 20 years working in media, mostly in radio for Triple M, Today FM and 2UE. We chat about starting his career as a Black Thunder driver, what it was like being in charge during the final days of the 2UE newsroom and getting into strife as the West Tigers ground announcer. Matt is one of my best mates in media, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Matt McDonald, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Thanks for finally having me. It's only been, what, 23 weeks since I've been waiting for the caller. But, no. uh, thanks. Got to save a little bit of quality. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, get to things. You're currently working as a freelancer at Sky News. How's yeah, all that going? Freelancing mostly at uh, Sky News. It's it's good. It's it's busy. It's uh, never a dull moment at Sky News. Um, Sky's pretty. Sky's pretty much like most newsrooms these days. They run on the smell of an oily rag, and they try and do a lot more than what they probably can do. But um, it's a very hard-working team there. Um, but, yeah, no, it's good. Now, you're best known for your work in radio, which spanned probably 20 years. Just on 19, actually. Wow. Mm. So if we can just compare the two mediums for a second, what did you find the most difficult going from someone that spent their entire career working in radio to then jumping into TV? The thing that attracted me about going to Sky News was – it's it's very similar to radio news. It's just with pictures. It's it's very fast paced. Um, there is that sense of immediacy that you can do on a Sky News, whereas you couldn't do on a commercial news service. Um, you're constantly having to update things and, and find new angles. So there's there's a lot of similarities between what Sky does and what you would do in a radio newsroom. Um, there's just a whole lot more elements to putting together a news bulletin and um, it's, you know, constantly changing. Now let's go back to where it all began. Did you always have an interest in media? Yeah, absolutely. From when I was a young teenager, I was absolutely fascinated with radio, radio in particular. Um, at that stage, TV didn't really interest me that much at all. Um, so, you know, Massive Triple M fan back in the day. Used to love listening to Mulray every single morning. I think the veggies were around back then as well. Um, that was when radio was really in its heyday. And, yeah, just absolutely fascinated me. Um, and that fascination just grew as I grew older and, yeah, the rest is kind of history. And what made you decide to pursue it as a career? Much to my mother's dislike, she, I think she wanted me to go, which I actually did go to university. I was going to do a communications degree. I think I lasted about three months and went, no, nah, bugger this. Um, and then came back to Sydney, bummed around and... Where did where were, were you enrolled to go to? Um, Canberra. Okay. Canberra, yep. which was a miserable bloody place. Hated it, came back to Sydney, bummed around for a while and then thought, oh, I better do something with my life and then... Started mucking around at some community radio stations around where I lived and, um, yeah, it just went from there. 
how did you get started in the in the business? So from there, um, I actually went to Max Rowley's Media Academy. It's an interesting uh, old place. That place it, in, it was, in and I'm Street. not sure. I'd, I'd never, I'd never heard of, of Max really, and didn't really know what he was doing or his little school. But um, someone recommended it to me, so I thought oh, I'll give this a go. And went along. You'd go to his little terrace place in Redfern on a. Mm. I think I went on a Tuesday night. I think. Yeah, it was a funny old time. He's very old fashioned, but um, I actually learned a fair bit from from him um, and from other people who were there at the time. But as I said, he was very old fashioned. I don't know necessarily if what he was teaching back then necessarily kind of translates into media today, particularly radio. Um, I think the thing about that course and being there at the at Max Rowley was that he gave you like a wide scope of things to do, like yeah. within the programs that you had to produce, right? You had to, you know, write and read your own commercial, write and read your own news, write and read, you know, do back announcing and all of those things. So it gave you like a an, an encapsulation of all of the things that you may want to do within any given sort of radio shift. So I think while you sort of say it was very old-fashioned, he sort of managed to meld together all of the aspects and then I guess his great skill was obviously moulding your voice or changing yeah, your absolutely. voice. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, he was brilliant at, at doing that. Um, but, yeah, no, you're right. The, you you learnt to tackle quite a few different aspects of, of what you would do in, in radio. Um, back in those days I wasn't particularly interested in doing news or or anything like that. I just wanted to be on air. Um, but it was, you know, very worthwhile. And that led to you getting a gig as a Black Thunder driver, is that right? Yeah, they, con- they contacted Max and they were pretty desperate for people back then. Thought, oh, I'll give it a go. Hated Today FM, absolutely hated Today FM. What was that? Just was never a fan for some reason. I don't know why because as being a Westie from way back and of being course. a big Triple M fan. Yeah, you're a Triple um, M fan or you're a Today FM West- fan and never the Twain shall meet. Absolutely, me. correct. But I thought, oh, bugger it, give it a go. And that was obviously by that stage they had merged and they were all one big happy family. I actually thought, oh, I'll get this job at Today and maybe I can just go and move to Triple M. Um, yeah, and ended up getting a job as uh, one of their Black Thunder pilots, handing out icy cold cans of Coke. And what was that like as an entry point to um, get into the business? Obviously, then you're in the door, so that's a positive thing because, you know, you obviously then bump into announcers and mm. you bump into other staff that are in control of other things at the radio station or two radio stations combined, essentially, um, at that great place at um, Bondi Junction. Oh, yes, the old Bondi Junction town. No, you're right. Look, it's about having your foot in the door and, um, you know, people bag out to a certain extent being a Black Thunder pilot, but I was in the door and, you know, I was massively overwhelmed and in awe of, of just being in that place. Um, and it, it took a little while, but then I – Use the fact that I was in the door to, you know, try a few things that, that I wanted to try and talk to the right people and get in their pockets and annoy the hell out of them. And You're a classic case of being able to do whatever they wanted you to do at any given time. I mean, you mentioned there that you worked as the 
Black Thunder driver and then, mm. you know, along came the announcing part of it and then the traffic part of it and then essentially the yep. door opened for news. So um, was that a case of you sampling all of those things to find out what actually suited your skill set best? No, it was. I pretty much had my heart set on being an announcer at that time anyway. So I was, whenever there was a studio spare, I was in that studio. I would finish a Black Thunder shift driving around Sydney all day and then spend another three hours in the studio just mucking around, learning how to panel, doing tapes, um, and, and just practicing. And Who would you send those tapes to? Who would you work with in those early days that you were wanting to um, push your claims to becoming an, an announcer? Uh, particularly at that stage, the music director at Today FM at the time, Irene Hume, as she is now known, she was enormously helpful and very encouraging at the time and she obviously had the ear of the program director who was Rob Logan at the time. Um, yeah, and it was just a matter of just pushing and pushing and just being in his ear and in her ear um, and then... Yeah, they eventually let me loose on the air doing mid-dawns. Do you think that's part of its loss now, the fact that people don't seem to have the time to put into developing young talent? They are obviously just wanting to get somebody who can do the job rather than, you know, foster that kind of talent and bring them through and, and take that time to, you know, give people words of encouragement or constructive criticism. Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that. Um you know, media companies are just shrinking and I know certainly when I was particularly at TUE, which I'm sure we'll touch on later, you struggle to find the time to properly mentor people as much as you would like to. Yeah. Um, and it makes it makes it very difficult. And as far as the announcing at Today FM goes, I mean, they don't have me dawn shifts anymore. It's all no. automated. There's nowhere for anyone to really kind of ply their trade and learn in the wee hours of the morning when they can get away with not being that great. Um, so it, it is very difficult for, for people these days. So what was the nickname for you? Was it Mad Matt back then or was there, uh, did that Matt- come <laughs> light, later into the uh, the scheme of things uh, with well, traffic and all the rest of it? Yeah, so... But what was your nickname when you were a Black Thunder driver? Because they all had nicknames. Yeah, I think it was Mad Matt back then. This is 20 years ago. I think I'm pretty sure it was Mad Matt. <laughs> Everyone had to have a nickname. That was that was an easy one, though, so that was fine. But, um, yeah, it was – I can't remember what year it was, but then uh, Triple M was already doing aerial traffic reports with the great Sando. Yeah. Um, and they decided on two day that they wanted to do it as well. Um, and originally they, originally they wanted Tim Bailey to do it. You imagine Tim Bailey being the traffic reporter. Tim Bailey Jesus. and Sando up together roof. in a helicopter. Yeah. Jesus, rain on the rooftops. <laughs> um, anyway, for some reason he didn't want to do it, and so yeah, I became the traffic reporter. And so, how long after that was was the mid dawns thing? So, how long did you do? Well, that I was for? doing. It's probably about a, maybe two years after I first started when they first let me loose, and then it was not long after that that. I became a traffic reporter. But then I was doing both. In fact, I was doing all three. I was doing Black Thunders, mid-dawns, traffic. So I would go in for a mid-dawn shift, which was a – I think it was a 1 o'clock start then, finish at 5.30, drive to the airport, go up in the chopper. Wow. It was a long day. So you kind of, in many ways, made yourself 
part of the furniture and the fact that you had so many things that you could actually mm. offer the radio station, which they'd look at you and see that, okay, we can pay this guy to do three mm. things when ordinarily we might have to employ three other people to do yeah. it. But, you know, that's what you had to do. Like if you wanted to get ahead, you had to do things like that and bust your gut. And and I lament the fact that there's so many particularly young people these days who just aren't prepared to go that extra mile. That, don't get me wrong, there are plenty who, who do, but – a lot of people these days, as they come through the industry, they're not necessarily prepared to to go that that hard. And you wouldn't have been paid a king's ransom back in those days either, just quietly. No, although it wasn't too bad for how old I was in, at that time. And, you know, that was back in the day when Austeria was still paying decent wages. Mm. Um, so for me, I was, I was quite happy with, mm. with what I was getting, but I worked my ass off for it. And at that stage, I was living in the Blue Mountains as well. So I was travelling from the Blue Mountains to Bondi Junction. It was a hard slog. Tell me about working in the chopper um, and going up there every day. And I guess part of it would have been, you know, you're obviously um, Sydney born and bred, but having to know all of the roads and find out where all the Mm. bottlenecks are and see it from the sky and describe things while you're moving in a Mm. helicopter-like, that must have been an experience in itself. Well, I actually think doing the Black Thunders was actually a massive advantage moving into the traffic reporting because you, yeah. you know you Sydney like the back of your hand. So that was actually quite easy. No sat-navs back in the day, though, no, either. No. The old Gregory sort of we, been given a workout. <laughs> Sando, and I, Sando and I, whenever the, the new edition of the Gregory's would come out, we'd go, oh, there's a new edition <laughs> of the Gregory's. Let's get down to Big W. And- <laughs> And he'd go and buy his leather-bound Gregory's and went, oh, God, I've got to have one of those. Oh, dear. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, seeing Sydney from the air every day is, is something pretty spectacular. And, and so where would you go? Like, did, would everywhere, you just, absolutely would, everywhere. Would, you, would, the, would the pilot just be directed to uh, an area where you'd received information that, the traffic was heavy. How did it all unfold? How did it work? Yeah, okay. So uh, back in the day, we were actually in the 2UE chopper back when they had a chopper, so we hired two seats in the back of the 2UE chopper. So essentially the 2UE reporter was in charge of, of where we went, but, you know, we were all sharing information really. So we would get information fed to us from our radio station. Uh, we'd also sit there and listen to police scanners and... In the chopper, so if we heard of something, we'd just go there straight away, flight paths allowing. So obviously some areas that were much more busier than others. So oh, yeah, and that's a great thing. There was many days when we couldn't fly due to weather or whatever, and you'd just say, oh, the M4's busy at <laughs> All Grove Road because you knew damn well it always was, and you'd just make up stuff. And you know, many a times I'd sit in the house at Glenbrook and – do the traffic reports from Glenbrook pretending I was in the air. And they obviously had sound effects that underneath you, well, chopper yeah, sound effects yeah. or? Well, two-day were, were big on music beds and stuff like that. Right. So they had a little music bed with the sound of a chopper. But because I did it on the two-way, it sounded legit. Yeah, no, the traffic was, was fascinating. And after a while, you take it for granted. Um, and we would take passengers up and they would be seeing Sydney and just be in absolute awe and just fascinated. And Santo and I'd just be like, yep. Seen it all before, um, but yeah, you do take it for granted. But it was 
it was a great fun time. What did you learn most from that experience? I guess it's one of those things that you were on uh, pretty much every 15 minutes during the mm. peak period. So you obviously had to be prepared and you had to know what you were going to say. And uh, that's one of the great sort of, I guess, training grounds for being prepared to hit regular deadlines. Yeah, absolutely. And and doing stuff on the run as well. And you wouldn't write much down. You'd just write, you know, a couple of points down and and, and talk around that. and doing that every 15 minutes was, as you said, great training and particularly great training for later on when I moved into news, doing things pretty much off the cuff and just having, you know, the uh, the basic details. What did Sando teach you about radio in those experiences? <laughs> because, you know, Brian Sanders is a guy that's been around Sydney radio for a long time um, and made that traffic spot his own mm. just with his unique style of delivery and trying to make the traffic sound exciting. Yeah, and boy, he did that well. I think I learnt more from Sando just observing him and, and listening to him. When I first started doing that, um, I think Denton was still doing breakfast on Triple M. So Sando was Sando was a personality. He wasn't just a traffic reporter. Mm. He was his massive personality, um, and he did it so well. But... Even just his general traffic reports, he he did that so well. And I wouldn't say I wanted to be Sando, but I wanted to be as good as yeah as Sando. Um, he's still the greatest, though, <laughs> the great man. <laughs> and looking at that also, it's just like it would have taught you a whole lot about timing out because you know you only had a certain window to get your traffic mm. report in, and you got to get all that information within a certain time period. So it's not like, you know, you could go on for like a minute and a half when yeah. you only had 25 or 30 seconds to fill. I often used to do that though and get in trouble for it because, as I said before, today used to have music beds and if the music bed rang, it ran out, <laughs> you, you, you went too far. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, it was, it was a great learning curve just, just about live radio in general, you know, stringing two words together and, and, and not stuffing up and, and as you said, timing out, ad-libbing on the run. What then led to you getting into the newsroom? Because obviously, okay, you're Black Thunder guy, you're Mid-Dawn guy, you're um, Traffic guy. Uh, was it a case of you thinking, I think there's a little bit more to it or you weren't quite confident in doing the announcing side of things or that you just developed a fascination with news and you wanted to take your career down that path? Yeah, look, a bit, little bit of both. I, I mean, I've always been fascinated with news, um, I guess I, at that stage wasn't as determined to pursue it as a career. But then I started to get bored with the announcing. Um, it's back in those days, it was very regimented and, you know, you'd have 10 seconds to talk here and you'd be introducing the same Britney Spears song four times a shift. And yeah, I just got bored. Is there much room for growth there? Because obviously, you know, in those days you would have had the morning crew were very much in, embedded and then you had guys like Ronnie Sparks and you had, I think, um, Keith Williams mm. and guys that you probably would have thought that never, ever would have moved on and Kyle and Jackie O were just coming through at that stage on the, on the, on the night time. So, you know, you were pretty much limited to that mid-dawn or roving, I think they call them floating, floating shifts. Yeah, and I did a lot of floating as well, so, you know, I would – do late nights, um, and for a while there, I was kind of anchoring this 
uh, weekend breakfast show as well, which was great fun, and I was glad to get that opportunity. Um, with it was with Gretel Colleen and uh, Gary Eck. Wow, what a combination! And I think this was the time um, they weren't sure whether Wendy was going to stick around, so I think they were putting this show on as a bit of a right test run as yep. a potential crew replacement, as they do. Um, so I was shitting myself and thinking. Why am I anchoring this? It's not like I'm going to be the next Paul Holmes or anything like that. Um, <laughs> in the end, Wendy re-signed and that show finished up as it did. Um, but it was around that time that, apart from being bored, you mentioned Ronnie Sparks and Keith Williams, who had been there forever, stalwarts of the industry, big bucks. They left. Ronnie got fired. Keith scribbling on um, scribbling air yeah. on you know, computer and monitors with no, liquid paper. Yeah. It was a big black texture, actually. <laughs> no smoking, but you know everyone, everyone used to do oh, that. He's a great then. man, Ronnie. <laughs> he's a good man. Um, and then Keith left. I'm not sure if Keith left of his own accord or whether he was gently pushed out the door. But it was at that moment I kind of thought, if they're leaving and not going anywhere else, as as it turns out, Ronnie went on to WS. But I thought to myself, you know, they're twice my age. What are the prospects for me? Do you want to be down that the track? Guy? Like, do I want to be that guy in twenty years' time, or you know, ten years' time, or whatever, who's all of a sudden out of a job and doesn't really have any other skills behind them? So I thought, oh, you know, maybe it's time to get a bit serious about this media career. Yeah, as I said before, I always had a fascination with news. When <laughs> when I was doing mid-dawn shifts in the middle of songs, um, I'd actually sneak around to the newsroom. And back in those days, they were still reading the news off bits of paper, printouts, and they used to leave a big old stack. Was it, was it, was it basis that they were using oh, as the, I don't know, the software the, system I don't anyway know what it was. before news was, was it called? <clears throat> I don't even called Dave or something like that. Mm. It was something. It was something weird. <laughs> so they used to print out the bulletins on bits of paper, and the used scripts would just be left in a massive pile. Yeah. So I started going around to the newsroom and just picking up the scripts and started practicing reading the news and just learning how they're putting stories together just from reading the scripts. And I'd take them back to the studio. You know, press play on the Britney Spears song and then get back to practicing my news. And that's, yeah, never told anyone that. I stole their scripts all the time. So, did you keep those and listen <clears throat> to them back, or how did it work? How did no, you? So I never actually recorded myself doing it, I just practiced reading them. And what you found that you enjoyed it, and then what was, the, well, how did you join the dots? Okay, I was just like, well, like you said, the <clears throat> announcing part of it, you were getting bored with, but. <clears throat> When did it actually click that, hang on, I could actually like just venture into a whole new department here? Yeah. Well, at that time, Sando, at that time, Sando was also doing uh, weekend sport on Triple M. So he was doing the traffic during the week and then would do weekend sport on Saturdays and Sundays. So he was doing seven days a week of breakfast and he was um, getting a little bit tired of it and was thinking about pulling the pin on the weekend sport. I kind of went, oh, that'd be cool to. Give that a crack. Because you've always had an interest in sport, yeah? Yeah, always had an interest in sport. And, yeah, it kind of just uh, spiralled from there. Um, 
Ali Drow was the news director at the time. Um, she was just about to leave, though. And uh, a guy called Ken Kavanagh was kind of the national news director. And, um, yeah, he got me into the newsroom and all the – in those days there was uh, David White, Gil Taylor, yep. Jeff Fields, yep. Laura Chillingearing was in there as well. And um, they all bent over backwards to, to help. Um, and then Russell Barwick took me under his wing as – his little protege. How did that go for you? <clears throat> um, look, it was good. Russ was extremely helpful um, and, you know, always pushed me to succeed. He was also trying to get me involved in other ventures of his. Doesn't like mind the, a venture, Russ Barwick. Like the West Tigers ground announcing. Oh, and did you end up doing that? Oh, yeah. And how yeah. did that go? What was that experience like? Oh, it was fun. It was a bit of extra cash. But he, he was doing it, he didn't want to do it anymore. He was looking for someone to do it. And then for some reason I ended up doing it. I was never a West Tigers fan. And at that stage it was the type, they were in a shit state. They, yeah. they were broke. They, yeah. Coaches sack, people coaches, putting fingers yeah, up on holes, absolutely. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd get 3,000 to a game if you were lucky. Because uh, that would have been in the infancy of the joint venture, yeah, right? Yeah, very early on. Yeah, yeah, it was what it was. I did get in trouble once. Did you make the papers? Yes, I did, actually. Hadley was after me. Really? He was. Why? He, he didn't know who it was. He thought it was Barwick. Oh, right. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, there's the old agenda there. So yeah. what, what What happened? What did you do? Uh, so it was a uh, Tigers-Cowboys game, Saturday night, Leichhardt Oval. There would have been about 1,500 people there if, if mm. we were lucky. Tigers hadn't won a game for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the Cowboys scored to level things up right on the full-time siren. And Julian O'Neill was actually uh, lining up to take the kick for goal to, to win the game. And he was taking his sweet-ass time <laughs> lining up his kick. Um, and I just got on the microphone as he was fart-assing around and said, all right, Tigers fans, you know what to do. And then the 1,500 people and the dog that were there just roared. And it felt like there was 20,000 people yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, he missed the kick. It was a draw. The media manager came up and hugged me and go, that was fantastic. I'm like, uh, and then the coach at the time, I can't remember who it was. It would have been uh, Terry Lamb maybe at the time. Uh, he was the Tigers coach. I'm just trying to think who the Cowboys coach was. But he, uh, he went off at the post-match press conference. Oh, really? Yeah. About I, the ground announcer? Yeah. Joy didn't find out about it until the next day when it was in the Sunday Telegraph. And wow. then, of course, Hadley got onto it. And he thought it was Barwick. And I remember listening to remember listening to Hadley on the way home from work, and he was going off his head like, "Well, right, we're going to find who this person is." Might have been the Cowboys coach might have been Tim Sheen at that stage, was it? Could have been. Could have been. Or Murray Hurst. It might be Murray Hurst. <laughs> well, Murray didn't last too long after that anyway, so it was uh, nah. nothing ventured, nothing gained. But yeah, um, yeah. So going into that weekend sport role and, and taking that on gave you the sort of thirst and I guess the the confidence to actually know that you could actually do it. So yeah. what was the next step from there after after doing it and, and proving to yourself that you could do it, the next progression in your career? Yeah, well, the good thing about that weekend sports um, gig was – uh, apart from doing the news, you also did these sports chats with the announcer on Triple M, which was a great chance to kind of show a bit of your personality and, and fart ass around a little bit. So that was a lot of fun. And then 
uh, eventually that role kind of disappeared. They were that was kind of the start of the purge at, at Triple M. Yeah, the and, cost cutting. Yeah, the the old cost cutting. And at that stage, they needed someone to fill in a new shift, and I said, "Well, I can do it. Easy enough. It's not that hard." And then from there on, it was news. Coming back to the the nicknames of it all, where did the the buck naked thing <laughs> now? Was this? I was, was buck naked. This was your name when you were reading On sport. Triple M, yes. So Guy Dobson, the PD, was adamant that everyone on air had to have a nickname. And I came in at an unfortunate time where he decided that the next person who was going to be on air was either going to be Anna Kornikova or Dirty Sanchez. Right. So <laughs> charming. Dobber, a visionary. He's a visionary. Uh, so I had to come up with a name so as not to be called Anna Kornikova or, or Dirty Sanchez. And it was actually uh, Carbo, Damien Carbon, who just shouted out one day, talking about Seinfeld, he just goes, oh, I'm buck naked. I'm like, fine, that's it, I'll be yeah. buck naked. <laughs> Terrific. And how long did buck naked last on the air? Quite a while, actually. I was buck naked for doing sport for a good year, I think, before moving over to news. You tic-tacked a fair bit between Today FM and Triple M in terms mm. of reading news. You're pretty much like just the jack of all trades that could slot in on both stations. Not everybody had that skill or not everybody had that available opportunity to do that because some people were considered Triple M newsreaders, some people were considered Today FM newsreaders. So mm. there was obviously enormous value in you to actually be that guy that could be across both markets. Now, a lot of people probably listening to this who not, don't necessarily work in media, don't understand how important it is to actually know the market for each station. So your Triple M's heavily slanted towards your blokes, your Today FM slanted towards you, probably a younger sort of female sort of dominated audience. So mm. having the skill or being taught the skill to write and read for those stations is obviously something that you pick up along the way, right? Yeah, and that's pretty much one of the first things that, I learnt working in that newsroom because even though it was a combined newsroom, they're essentially providing different services tailored to different audiences. It's all about the language you use, yeah, right, absolutely. and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. And, you know, that's not something that's easily picked up and it's not something mm. that everybody can transition into because – there's some people that come from an AM background that go to mm. FM and they don't really have the right sound or the right words or anything like that. And you obviously had come from within the building, so you would have had a greater understanding of what was required. Yeah, and obviously listening to both Today FM and Triple M for years, you do get a feel for for um, for what they require. But I've heard many times over the, over the years throughout my career that kind of taking the piss out of... FM news and, you know, it's not serious news, it's it's piss easy, whatever else. I actually find it often harder to be doing FM news than it was to do AM news. Why is that? Um, well, I, you've had these conversations with um, previous people you've chatted to, you know, squeezing in all the day's news into 90 seconds or whatever else. 
and doing it in a way that's tailored to a particular audience. Well, that's the constant thing yeah. about FM news is that depending on the program director, depending on who's running certain programs, mm. you, news bulletins often change, whereas on your AM station you've pretty much been yeah, constant. four minutes and yeah. that's your bag, whereas like some PDs might want three and a half yeah. minutes of news on a triple M for argument's sake. Another guy might want 90 seconds. Yeah. So it's really difficult to sort of adapt and try and as we've discussed before on this podcast, you don't want to disrespect your audience, but at the same time, like, you still feel as though you need to hit the stories that are most mm. important for those markets. Absolutely. And often it depends which way the wind was blowing. If, if you know, if Triple M would have, have a bad survey, the program people would get in a tiz and go, oh, what are we going to do here? Oh, let's cut the news back from three minutes to 60 seconds. It's like news yeah. is like the automatic fix for the entire radio station. Yeah, it's just like the only time they really care about it, if there's like a Bali bombings or a September 11, and then for the rest of the time you could pretty much fart on air and they wouldn't care. <laughs> but if it means that they can get an extra song in or an extra ad break in, what's the first thing to go? It's, it's the news. news. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, I think, because, you know, essentially at the end of the day people still – Hmm. want to know what's happening in the world, even though they're listening to an FM station. Yeah. It's an easy fix for them, and it always has been over over many years. What do we do? Oh, let's cut the news back or let's not do daytime news, which is just extraordinary. Hmm. News was always the target. As you said, if it's just for an extra 60 seconds to put another song in or whatever, it's always news. So, again, let's fast forward a little bit. We mentioned the period there where you were sort of doing um, everything on the radio station. You're around the traps doing, I don't mm. know, drive for um, yeah, different drive people and then um, different people leave and then so you're, you're editing breakfast and you're mm. doing all of that. Um, it gets to the point where, you know what, even though you took that little um, hiatus to go to Nova for um, a short amount of time, you came back, but it was never as much fun the second time around for you and then no. – you just wanted another another challenge, and after a, a time away from from radio, you just decided that um, you'd venture to AM, which is a bit of a a weird situation in that most people uh, tend to start out their career in AM stations, particularly from a journalistic point of view, learn the craft, and then mm. go off to um, the greener pastures of FM radio, where things where are a little bit is. less a <laughs> little bit less stressful and the money is higher for mm. some unknown reason. Um, the less work you do, the more that you get paid. Yeah, uh, and what is that? Yeah, I don't understand any of that, but then I was quite happy to cop it on the chin when I moved <laughs> from um, working AM to, to going to FM. But what led to that decision to think, you know what, I might give AM a crack now? Yeah, look, so I left Austereo, uh at the start of 2010 after coming back. All up, I'd been there for 13 years, yep. including the little six-month hiatus. It was 13 years, and that's a long time to be working in the one place, even though I was doing so many different jobs over yeah, those yeah, 13 yeah. years. Just to be in that one place for so long was um, almost unheard of, really. But um, it's it no gold watches these days, unfortunately. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> and it was a changing time too because, yeah. you know, while Today FM was obviously then the gun station after the um, Judith Lucy experiment, it then rose to the, the top through Kyle and Jackie O, the juggernaut mm. that, that was their um, radio program and then Hamish and Andy obviously. Triple M went through numerous changes during that 
the stage. And obviously with every stage comes a change of, of, of program, which means it generally means a change of news reader, which yeah. means a change of, you know, just a whole lot of changes. And it's obviously when you're working on, you know, 12 or 18-month cycles, it becomes hard to take, right? It does. And whenever there was a change, it changed the dynamics a lot. Um, for some reason, there was a phase at Triple M that they would have a personality uh, on air and they would be taken off air. Maybe their show wasn't doing so well or whatever else. But because they were still under contract, they had to find something for them to do. Yeah. Let's get them to read the news. I mean, we went through the whole experiment. Oh. Paul Murray read the news there for a while. Rachel mm. Corbett read the news. Sammy Lucas. I mean, it was getting ridiculous where that was Jamie Angel's answer to everything was bring them off mm. wherever they were and chuck them in as a newsreader. And, and I think later know, when I, after I left, uh, Spoonman was doing the news as well. Well, Spoonman did the yeah. news as well. But, I mean, he sort of At least he's a, got the pedigree. Yeah, he had a bit of credibility to him, whereas the other people that were slotted in there it was just like a a thing and everyone who and I was working behind the scenes then at that stage just had to deal with it mm. and some of those experiments lasted six weeks you know and for someone that were, had invested a lot of time in, in trying to build their credibility as a newsreader that was something that you were getting jack of yeah absolutely and working with particular personalities who weren't news people became very difficult because you know, they'd been obviously they'd been demoted. They're having their own little issues, but they would, you know, more often than not take it out on you. And you know, you cop that. That's the media. But after a while, I just got jack of it. You work your ass off to make someone else look good. <laughs> yeah, they just throw it back in your face. Um, dealing with divas at five o'clock in the morning, you kind of just look at your life and go, hmm. Yeah, when you set your alarm for the – we're talking about the middle of the night here. We're not even talking about an early start. We're actually talking about the middle of the night. Mm. The last thing you want to deal with is people that are going to give you grief for absolutely no reason whatsoever. So yeah. um, if ever you're going to make a change, that then that was going to be the time to make it. Yeah, um, and look, don't get me wrong, like dealing with divas and personalities in the media is part and parcel. There, you know, There's a lot of it, but personally at, at that stage um, – I just had enough and after 13 years it was – and I wasn't particularly getting on with the news director at that time. He was based in Melbourne and trying to run the show out of there and kind of leaving it up to me and Sasha Higlett to – Tannica she is now – to run the newsroom and we kept on looking at each other going, well, who's in charge here? It's like, well, thank you, I know. Um, so, yeah, it just became – it became unpleasant and – decided to leave. Then off it went to two week. Yeah, I did a bit of travelling when I I'd had about nine months off actually, which was one of the greatest things ever. If you can do it, do it. Um, did a bit of travelling, a bit of bumming around and then, um, yeah, got in contact with Clinton Maynard who had been in contact with um, at various stages over the years and went and chatted to him and he was super keen to get me on board. I was kind of arming an iron because I think at that stage I was thinking, oh, this media thing. It's time to give it up, time to try something else. I thought, oh, I'll give this media thing. Once you love it, you love it. Yeah, it's very hard to get out of your blood. But I'll give it one more crack, why not? So, um, yeah, started it at TUE on about half the money I was earning at Austereo, but I thought 
you know, bugger, I'm going to give this a go. How much was that trying to prove to yourself that you had some credibility as a radio journalist yeah. or newsreader? Because, you know, like you said before, people often deride the fact that yeah. uh, people that work in FM radio aren't necessarily real journalists. So That's right. what part of you wanted to prove that you could actually do that? I wasn't necessarily worried about what other people thought, but you're right. People did have a certain um, opinion of what you did in the FM world uh, and that it wasn't necessarily serious and you weren't doing proper news when in actual fact that's not necessarily the case. The opportunity to work at CUE, you know, the greatest news station Sydney's ever had was something that I was super keen to to try um, and I thought, I'll give this a go and if this doesn't work, you know, we'll call it a day in the old media mm. world. So, yes, was doing uh, reading Weekend Breakfast, uh, which back in those days was still a prestigious and super important shit. Absolutely. Because um, the news doesn't stop on the weekend, right? No. And, <laughs> I mean, TUE's ratings came from its weekend shows, so it was even more important to them. Um which, you know, some people don't understand these days. Um, and, yeah, and then doing uh, three days during the week of on-the-road stuff. And how did it come about that you were then moved to Canberra to work alongside the great Michael Packing in the, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the Bureau? Because, you know, knowing you as I do, politics is something that's always fascinated you. Yeah. So the lure of that to actually go down there and, and perhaps work on an election campaign and go through all of the things that you would go through in the space of any given year, like, you know, budgets and mm. all of those kind of things that are important and, you know, have an impact on um, national affairs. So mm. was that something that you really wanted to do or was it the fact that they created something down there for you and it, it seemed attractive? No, well, it was it was quite accidentally, actually. Um, I got offered a job in Canberra working for 2GB back when I was still working at Osteria. Justin Kelly called me out of the blue um, and offered me the job pretty much running 2GB's Canberra Bureau. And I thought at the time, why why, why me? Like, yeah. I'm not quite sure why you're – I was absolutely flattered but still kind of asking myself, oh, why me? I'm sure there's other more capable people. In the end, I turned it down. It was a, mostly money back then. Um, but I also didn't think I was really ready for that. I'll tell you how long ago this was. When Rosa offered me the job, he said, uh, you know, X amount of money and uh, you can have a BlackBerry. I'm like, what's a BlackBerry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how long ago that was. But um, in hindsight, it was probably a good idea that I didn't take on that. I think I would have been swimming well out of my league there. And then um, so after about three or so months of working at TUE, Latika Burke left. It was just after the election campaign. And there was a conversation in the newsroom, oh, who's going to go to Canberra? And I kind of half-jokingly went, oh, I'll go to Canberra. Didn't hear about it for a couple of days. And Clinton calls me in and said, are you serious about going to Canberra? I'm like, yeah, right, I'll go to Canberra. Move down to Canberra. Thought I'd never ever live in Canberra again, but yeah, thought this could be the best thing I've ever done. In the end, I think it was. It was a volatile period in Australian politics. Yeah, it the was, whole was, uh, Rudd Gillard arrangement. Yeah, so this was well, this was post. This was the hung parliament. So um, Gillard was PM by the skin of a teeth. 
Um, and it was full on time because, you know, one bad move and the government could have fallen. But at that stage, the whole uh, political cycle had become a constant election campaign. Um, you know, Tony Abbott was out somewhere every day pretty much campaigning. And I think that kind of changed the the landscape of political reporting at the same time. What did you learn from working with Michael Packey? Oh, patience. <laughs> <laughs> mate, he's a machine, mate. He doesn't stop. Mate. He's a machine. Look, he's the hardest working person I think I've ever met in radio he, and the most passionate as well. He just never stops. But he does it because he loves it and he does it because he knows that he has to because if, you know, if it doesn't get done. And, you know, we work some bloody long days in that bureau. You know, we'd be in there at, you know, 6.37 and not be out of there till 10 o'clock at night. It was just the two of us. And it wasn't just two. We, you know, we had the whole network as well, which we yeah. had to take care of. So, but yeah, he's definitely the hardest working person I think I've ever met. What's it like working down there in Canberra when someone who's had an interest in politics that down the corridors there's Laurie Oakes or there's yeah. Mark Riley or, you know, there's these great newspaper journos that have done the round for so many years. It must have been at times very surreal and then obviously there's the politician side of it where mm. you're talking to the, the leaders of the nation. Yeah, that's very intimidating. You know, where the Prime Minister walks into the, the Bureau. Um, yeah, at first it is very intimidating. And it's also intimidating, you know, being around the likes of Laurie Oaks and, and stuff like that. But you kind of, you got to detach yourself from that pretty quickly. Otherwise, you just get caught up in that little Canberra bubble. And you see that about a lot of people, particularly in the press gallery. They're, they're really caught up in a little bubble there. Um, politics is their life. And when I moved to Canberra, I was adamant that A, I wasn't going to be there for all that long. B, I wasn't going to immerse myself in that whole political life where, you know, you're always hanging out with people from the press gallery and other politicians and, and whatever else. Um, I just didn't want to immerse myself in that kind of life. Um, I think I did a pretty good job of that. Because um, it'd be hard not to get sucked into that. Absolutely. Because you also got to... You know, political reporting is not just going in there and reporting what's happening. You know, you have to build relationships and network and, you know, suck up to politicians and have your little sources and whatever else. So there is an element of that where you've got to kind of immerse yourself. So it's actually quite difficult doing that but also trying to detach yourself from everything. But it was, a, you know, it was – I was only there for a year but it was probably the most rewarding year of my career. And working with Packy was outstanding because um, while I was the junior reporter, he never, ever once treated me like the junior reporter. It was – we were a team and it was a very well-oiled machine, that 2UE Canberra Bureau, let me tell you. And something looks pretty smart on your resume, right? You know, you've covered politics oh, in yeah. Canberra. Yeah. You know, 13 years at Austereo, great, but one year covering politics in Canberra on your resume, I think that trumps – 13 years at Austereo. Now, sort of things changed a little bit at 2UE. There was changes of, of management and I guess changes of programming given the fact that they were sort of getting slaughtered by 2GB mm. from a, a programming sense, not necessarily a news sense. And Clinton Maynard, who you mentioned there, was the, the news director, but um, I think Greg Burns 
left, uh, Sandy Aloisi left, who were in programming roles, and then all of a sudden Clinton was uh, well before that um, was put in charge. So uh, Peter Brennan was the program director, right? But anyway, <laughs> Clinton ended up becoming um, program director, so it created an opportunity for a new news director. Yeah, well, even before that, um, uh, Sarah Crab, as she was back then. Uh, was doing Drive and was the deputy news director and then um, she left to go over to WS uh, and then Clinton offered me her role. And I kind of armed and art about it. I, I kind of felt like I had unfinished business in Canberra, like I hadn't, yep. hadn't really done that much yet. But in the end I decided, oh, you know, I didn't want to be here forever. It's probably not as long as I thought I'd be here, but, you know, if I don't take this, I might never get back to Sydney. Mm. So, um, yeah, I took on that role, became Deputy News Director and uh, was doing drive. That obviously comes with some importance when Clinton's not there. You're pretty much in charge of the, the newsroom. You've been in charge of the Austereo newsroom before but without mm. the title. What was it like running an AM station or learning the ropes to run an AM station where you would have been in charge of, of rosters. And, I mean, you're pretty much used to delegating duties when it came to sending people out on the road, but obviously mm. you had a whole lot more resources than what you were used to at um, Triple M and Today FM. Yeah, so, um, you know, using those resources and putting them where they needed to be was, you know, a bigger task because you got to cover more for a start um, and you had a bigger team. And a lot more personalities to, to deal with as well. And it wasn't just the news that you had to worry about. You also had to worry about what programs wanted well, as well. So if they wanted you to be on this story, you had to give serious consideration to that. So, yeah, it was a good little learning curve. Um, there was a big slab there when Clinton was off in um, London for the Olympics, actually. Uh, he was away for several weeks. There was a massive blow-up with a certain staff member. <laughs> I had to deal with that and take that through to the general manager and whatever else, and that was the first kind of went, oh, shit, this is So this did is you easy. did you feel at that stage that you were ready for that kind of responsibility? No, I never really had designs on the news director's job. Yeah, it wasn't something that I aimed for. I was quite happy being the 2IC and, you know, starting work at 11 o'clock. But, yeah, never really had designs on on being the, the news director. But things changed, obviously, and yes, you were put into that role. Yeah, so Peter Brennan left or was leaving and um, Clinton was appointed acting program director and uh, I was asked to be acting news director. And that was the day after a, <laughs> day after a Christmas work party, which I was blind at. Just for something different. And then... Juno's getting drunk at Christmas yeah, parties. Right. Jeez, who would have thought? Outrageous. Juno's getting drunk on a Wednesday. <laughs> um, got to work late, got hauled into the general manager's office and thinking, oh, shit, what the hell did I do last night? Yeah. Um, and they got sat down, hung over us all, said, oh, we want you to be acting news director. And didn't really think so much about it. Yeah, that's, mm. that's fine. As long as I'm not in trouble, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and yeah, there was a couple of months of acting with a uh, appointed Clinton the program director, and then I think by fate I became news director. So, did you ever look back and think about that situation where, within a relatively short space of time, you were at an FM station that 
let's be fair, really didn't have a whole lot of direction from terms of uh, <laughs> a news sense to going to Canberra, then becoming news director of Sydney's oldest radio station. Like when you look back on it now, do you think, gee, that's a weird career progression but yeah. satisfying at the same time? It was quite a meteoric rise through the TUE ranks. Like it was – so I started there October 2010 and then by November 2012, I'm news director or acting news director. So, yeah, it was – it happened quite quickly. Were there any other people there that got their noses out of joint that, you know, this Johnny come lately from the FM world had come in and pretty much swooped in and, and taken the, the top job or was no, the fact that, that over that over that two-year period you'd managed to build up your credibility and, and, and respect from your other staff members? Yeah, I, th- I think that's very much the case. And particularly being deputy news director, you're kind of like the good cop, news director, bad cop, deputy, good cop. So you kind of befriend all your staff and you build up that um, that relationship with, with the staff where they're much more comfortable coming to talk to you about things than they would to the news director. Um, so that, it made it easier and it was no, I don't think it was any great surprise when they did make me news director um, to anyone there in the newsroom. Managing staff and managing egos, mm. how do you deal with that side of things? Because... If somebody leaves, you've got to replace them and then there's still important rounds like state parliament and mm. courts and all of those things, police, where there might be two equally experienced people going for the same job and having to make that decision to go with one over the other when, as you said, you're, you've built up a, a friendship with those people. Mm. How did you find that side of the job? At UWE, it actually wasn't that difficult in terms of, you know, appointing people to, to certain rounds. Um, the first thing I did when I became news director was sat down with everyone and said, right, what do you want to do? What's your, what's your goal? So you get a clear idea about what everyone wants to do pretty much straight away. There was, you know, different levels of talent and I think people knew where they stood in terms of the ladder. So when these, you know, certain rounds came up, it was, you know, pretty straightforward to... Appointing people. Having to deal with staffing issues and having to deal with finance and all of these people that you wouldn't have necessarily had to deal with in the past, what was that like for you? Did you find that particularly stressful or how did you click into management mode from just being regular journal and newsreader? Well, it was quite stressful because I didn't really have any management experience at all, you know, apart from being a you know, a senior member of the team in terms of actual managerial experience. I had zero. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a fair bit of support around me at UE. Um, Clinton was just in the next office. So, if, you know, ever I had any issues or questions or whatever, I just duck my head in there and see him. But as pretty much as soon as I became news director, the cutback started. So straight away I wasn't replaced in my role as deputy. Yep. So, you know, I was spending six, seven hours on air doing news every day, which doesn't lose much time for doing managerial stuff, like budgets and rosters and, and things like that. So, yeah, put you know, but it just had to be done. It was a lot of pressure, pretty stressful. I'd imagine something that was also stressful was 
rumours and innuendo about the newsroom closing. Now, mm. I'd lived through it previously when all of that speculation took place in 2003. It didn't eventuate then. It became a massive news story, not only within the industry, but politicians like Bob Carr mm. and people outside the industry were saying how poor it was, which I think that pressure eventually led to the idea being skittled. It didn't get skittled when you were in charge. Mm. Take me through that period and what was it like being the boss of the radio station where most of the cuts took place when the merger between 2UE and 2GB took place? Yes, look, it was very challenging, soul-destroying in the end, really, um, because there had been rumours around. And look, there'd been rumours around the year prior to when it actually happened. So it never, it never really went away. But, it, you know, it, again, it didn't eventuate the year before it actually did. And then a year later, it was on like Donkey Kong, trying to do your job and maintain a new service and keep your staff morale up and make sure they're doing their job while you've got all these rumours swirling around. Um, is is extremely difficult and that only got even more difficult as the merger eventually happened and then that three-month wait before shareholders agreed and then yeah, then when it actually happened. Were you disappointed <laughs> that Sorry. ACMA or Commercial Radio Australia or nobody's really a member of the MEAA these days, oh, but yeah. they all seem to be a toothless tiger when it came to the the crunch and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of support out there for you guys that were essentially going to lose your job or there was going to be a whole range of people on either side of the divide that were going to Mm. be lost to the industry. You mentioned 2003, the the outrage that followed that, you know, presenters on air on on either station um, and politicians. There was a speech in federal parliament at the time just saying how shit it was. And I look back on this time round and the silence from everywhere was deafening. Not a word, you know, apart from a couple of articles in the paper, there was no outrage about, you know, what's happening to, A, these great news stations or about the quality of journalism or the future of journalism and the fact that a whole bunch of people are about to lose their jobs. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And I I mean from, you know, whether it's presenters or whatever, we did have some uh, people who were members of the union. They didn't give a shit. Did not give a shit because it wasn't it wasn't an ABC or a Fairfax where 120 people are going to lose their jobs. There's nothing, nothing yeah. in it for them. There's no point. Take me behind the scenes. We spoke to Glenn Lauder earlier on this podcast series and he painted a really good picture of what things were like then. Take me through it from your point of view. You have to tell people they no longer have a job because mm. somebody's agreed to, I guess, a list of people that are going to make it and a list of people that aren't. Yeah, well... Um... Because you were told, from my understanding, that there was going to be a 50-50 split. Um, it didn't actually work out that way. No, no, I was, no, I was, wasn't, I wasn't told that. Um, in so many words, I, I was never told anything concrete. I was led to believe that certain scenarios would play out because essentially, while the merger process was happening, they couldn't really say anything at all. It was, you know, there's certain legal aspects that they just simply can't discuss things with you. 
but I would have regular meetings with uh, HR, obviously the GM, although he was just as in the dark as everyone else, supposedly to update me on what was happening and, you know, the process of picking stuff and, and whatever else. In the end, in hindsight, looking back at it now, it wasn't, it wasn't to keep me up to date. It was HR fishing for gossip and going back to those in charge saying, you know, this is the situation. But yeah, it was, it was certainly very challenging because there was that, firstly, the, it was announced just before Christmas. Yep. Merry Christmas, everyone. Never yeah. a good time, but that's no. probably the worst time. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas. We're going to merge in three months and you might not have a job. It was just that three-month waiting period of what's It's like a prisoner happen. being on death row, really. Oh, absolutely. Not it's, to it's, sort of over-dramatise things, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> you're talking about, you know, people's careers and livelihoods and all oh, those things. It's like um, walking the plank. Um, <clears throat> and it's a long time to wait, a very long time to wait, and it's very hard for everyone to maintain their focus and do their jobs properly. And How hard was that side of things to actually get the product on air when you – would have got the feeling that there would have been a whole lot of people that wouldn't necessarily have been given a shit about the fact that they still had to do a job, but mm. they didn't know when they were going to be finishing up. Because no one really knew anything, it was, I think a lot of the staff kind of treated it as a test. It never was, mm. but, which is, and it's not a bad thing that they, they treated it like a test because that kept their motivation up to do what they had to do and do it to the best of their ability. And to the credit of all my staff in the TOE newsroom, they maintained absolute dignity throughout the entire process. Those those three months were terrible on everyone, but they still worked their asses off. They still went to the next level. They got the job done and they still did it brilliantly. Um, and I can't fault anyone for that. But it was extremely hard. Now, what about that last news bulletin? I think that will be remembered as one of the more iconic moments in Australian broadcasting history, the last ever news bulletin at, at 2UE. But it was really well put together in the fact that you involved all of the staff in that yeah. bulletin. I actually had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I, was, I was too busy in redundancy meetings. But you must have known that that was a really important occasion. Well, see, there was so much going on that it didn't really dawn on me the enormity of what was happening. So we got, I think it might have been the Monday, they said to us, right, so uh, the newsroom's moving to Piermont as of Thursday, um, blah, 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 you'll all find out in the next few days whether you get a job. It's like, okay. Um, and it didn't really click to anyone that us moving to Piermont meant the end of 2UE News. Like it just didn't – there was so much shit going on and we were worried about so many other things. So that was the Monday. I got tapped on the Tuesday and then everyone else kind of found out on the Wednesday and Thursday. And then it wasn't until Sarah Morris tweeted something from London. She'd been in touch with me and I told her what was going on and then she tweeted it and that's when it kind of became public knowledge that today was the last day. Yeah which, you know, we already knew but didn't really think too much about it. And, again, I was in and out of redundancy meetings all day, so I didn't know what was going on around me. Uh, and it wasn't until Peter Overson called late in the afternoon. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'd done a bit of work with Pete 
in the years prior to Osterio. Abbott hadn't spoken to him for years. Mm. He, he was flat on his back after having back surgery. And he rang me. He said, Matt, it's Peter Overton. He said, oh, I heard what's happening. I've been following you since Triple M. Really sad to hear what's happening at TUE. I'm going to be listening tonight. And at that moment I went, shit, this is a big deal. <clears throat> like this is important. And then TV stations are ringing asking if they can send their cameras in. I'm like, oh, shit. Because I already bagged about three days later, stuff is all I'm doing the last bulletin. Yeah, and that's when it dawned on me. went, oh, yeah, this is actually a big deal. How does it sit with you, knowing that you're the last person to ever read a news bulletin on TUE? Um, Do you have a copy of it? Yeah. Yeah. Have you listened to it? No. Will you listen to it? Oh, yeah. It's not that I don't want to listen to it. I just no. haven't listened to it. Um, it's it, look, it, it was an honour. Um, obviously sad. I don't know how I got through that bulletin because I have never, ever, ever been nervous doing a news bulletin ever in my life until that night. And I think it was just probably the enormity of it all. In fact, there was TV cameras in the news booth and about 70 people all standing outside watching on. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, And also because uh, Amelia Burney put that bulletin together with something from everyone. I said to her, I said, mate, we're not going to fit all this in. She said, talk fast. You're not dropping anyone. So I sped through that bulletin like you would not believe. Didn't miss a beat, but, yeah. I wouldn't say it's the finest bulletin I've ever done. Going through all of that and experiencing it all, you obviously haven't lost your love for the media. You could probably be excused Um, for otherwise, but... You know, you're still working in it now. Do you see in your future that you will always be someone that will want to work in media or is there other things on the horizon that you want to achieve? Not necessarily. Um, you know, media is in, media's in the blood um, and it's hard to lose that. And, you know, there's no denying that the whole everything that happened at TUA left me very disillusioned. Um, but who knows what the future holds? I don't, I don't think I gave myself enough time after TUE to kind of get over the whole thing. I kind of jumped into Sky pretty much straight away. Just because you felt you had to get another job? Yeah, well, strike while the iron's hot. Well, people are offering you jobs. Take them before they forget who you are. But, yeah, I, I don't think I gave myself enough time to kind of sit back and reflect because it was such a frantic time. And I was never worried about myself personally. I was more concerned about what was happening to the staff and the impact that was happening on them. We'll wrap it up in a sec, but I just want to get some advice from you, somebody who has gone through the ranks and started at the very bottom, if you will, with the street team, moving through to you know mid-dawn announcing and traffic and then into the newsroom. So you've obviously experienced it from a whole range of levels and now working in TV what would your advice be to younger people who are looking to break into the industry given the fact that you've experienced the changing part of media today? I would tell people to persevere and just be prepared to work hard. I, I struggle. I see a lot of people coming through the industry these days who kind of want things on a silver platter and it just doesn't happen like that. You've got to work your guts out. Media's, it's weekends. It's nights. It's I, that yeah. whole thing. And, you know, 
the money's not great, the hours are shit, it's not a particularly glamorous life. So you've got to be passionate about it. And if you're passionate about it, you're on the right track already because that hopefully that passion will turn into hard work. Be prepared to do the shit things first. Use, if you're in the door of somewhere, milk it for all it's worth. Use it to your advantage and, and try different things. Don't, don't commit yourself to one medium because it you know, might not be around for much longer. Matt McDonald, thanks very much for your time. Always a pleasure, Ralph. Can we have a beer now? <laughs> yes. Thank yes, you. let's. There he is, Matt McDonald, freelancer for Sky News. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Matt, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at McDonald Matt. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.